Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Nick Gosling, and today we are doing our first ever debate here on the show. Joining me is Keith Giles. Keith has been on our program before. He is the author of the new book, Jesus Untangled, and is a member of a house church congregation in Orange County, California. The other participant is Mark Van Steenwick is the executive director of the Center for Prophetic Imagination, the founder of the Mennonite Workers, and the author of the book, The Unkingdom of God. And Keith and Mark will be debating on the issue of the two-kingdom doctrine. And basically what that means, many of our listeners may already be aware, but it has to do with it has to do with the the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world and are they separate and should Christians participate in politics? These are all kind of historical uh, issues that have been debated throughout the church uh, for for centuries. And so Keith and Mark come down on some some different sides of this issue, but we're now going to uh, turn over to the debate without any further commentary from me and hear from them. So the format we will be following is each debater will have up to 12 minutes to make their primary argument. And then after that, we will have 16 minutes approximately of dialogue between the debaters speaking to one another and kind of countering each other's points. Then we've set aside uh, some time in order for me as the moderator to ask questions based on what the debaters bring up in the, uh, in, in the first part of the episode. And then each debater will have three minutes to make a closing statement. So without further ado, we will begin by allowing uh, Keith to make his opening argument. So Keith, uh, welcome to the program, and you may begin. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me uh, on this and hosting this. And thank you, Mark, for joining as well. And uh, thank you all for listening. So uh, I'm going to just get started and I'd make my case for the the pro side of the um, the two kingdoms doctrine, and, and you summarized it pretty pretty well there. Essentially, what it is is that um, the early the early Christians, starting from the beginning, really, you know, in the Book of Acts and going through the up until the time of Constantine, uh, it was the Christians' attitude and belief and practice uh, that in their in the process of following Christ in the process of being disciples of Jesus, they were following what he taught and how he lived and how he behaved. And that's some, that's what we call the two kingdoms doctrine. And how that played out in their lives is that um, they, as you said, they saw that there were two kingdoms. There was the kingdom of the world, uh, which for them uh, most most noticeably was Rome, uh, but it would be any kingdom, any government, any empire, um, that uh, of the world, any system of government of the world. And they they believed that they had been rescued from that kingdom by by Christ, that Jesus himself was a king, uh, that he invited them to follow them into a kingdom, into a kingdom way of life, that the gospel itself is an invitation to enter a kingdom. The, the, the gospel as Jesus communicates it in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, um, is that you know the good news of the kingdom is that the kingdom is here now and the kingdom is within, and that you can enter the kingdom of God right now by uh, taking up your cross daily, dying to yourself, submitting your life to Christ um, and his authority and following him, his life and his teachings and his example. And by doing that, you have crossed over from a way of life that was defined by the government and by the world, uh, and now you're living in a new kingdom where you're living under the new ethics and rules and freedom that we enjoy uh, in the kingdom of God and in Christ. And the evidence of this is really unanimous throughout early church history. It, it's something that um, if you go and study uh, early church history, you find quotes 
like this from Tertullian, uh, which is written around the year 195, where Tertullian says, in us, and he's speaking for the Christian church, he says, all zeal in the pursuit of glory and honor is dead. So we have no pressing inducement to take part in your public meetings, nor is there anything more entirely foreign to us than the affairs of state. And when he said, he's speaking now to, to Romans and making a case for why Christians are different. And then that was really the, the point, is that Christians lived lives that were radically different from people around them. And, and this radical orthodoxy um, is really one of the, it's what set the early Christian church apart from everyone else around them. Uh, Origen also wrote in a letter to um, the Roman Celsus, and an attempt to explain why it was that Christians were so different and why they did not participate in politics. And he says, uh, it is not for the purpose of escaping public duties that Christians decline public office, it, but that they may reserve for themselves a more divine and necessary service in the church of God for the salvation of men. And this service is at once necessary and right. And and he goes on to say, uh, I'm going to summarize what he says, but he goes on to essentially say that uh, their attitude was simply this, that if there was someone among them who was especially gifted, uh, who was even someone who was so humble, even in their uh, ability uh, to lead and to, to have having a gift uh, to lead, that they didn't, they had to be sort of coerced and convinced. No, no, really, you you should step up. You should. You, your life is such a strong example. People, you have an influence here uh, in the community. You should step forward and 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 assume this place of leadership. That those kinds of leaders, he says, they you know why would we want them to go over to to uh, the worldly government and take part in civil affairs? You know why wouldn't we want them to stay with us? And to help us in our very, you know, important and necessary and eternal work in the kingdom of God, which is to preach the gospel, to live out the gospel, uh, and to see lives transformed from the inside out, which is really the whole point of what they were doing and of the gospel. And so, uh, and I could read more. I don't want to continue to read quotes, but there are other quotes, uh, again, throughout church history um, from people like Clement of Alexandria and Tatian. Uh, and and each of them are saying in their own way that essentially we we are not part of this world. We are part of the kingdom of God. Uh, and they saw this as a very strong separation. And so they lived their lives in this radical way. People around them would have noticed it and did notice it and said, you know, why why is it you don't participate in politics? Why is it you're not interested in those things? Why is it that you don't go to the games? Uh, why is it you don't participate in those kinds of things that everyone else is doing? And so, in other words, their lives were radical examples um, of living something in a way that was against the status quo. And, and and this is what I believe that every Christian is still today called to do. Now, this continued again, as I said, up until the time of Constantine. Constantine introduced the entanglement of the church and the state together. Um, and, uh, and that really kind of established a new way. And, and then suddenly what happened was, and again, I'm going to just kind of paraphrase here and fast forward, but essentially what happened was, is Constantine redefined what it meant to be a Christian, what, what it means to be a Christian. And Constantine, uh, well, before Constantine, what it meant to be a Christian was what I just described. It was orthopraxy. It was the way you lived your life. You were living a life that was modeled after the life of Christ and the teachings of Jesus. And so to be a Christian was to live differently. Constantine um, was very interested in, in setting up doctrine and theology and canonizing the scripture and understanding what, you know, uh, getting those things sort of uh, nailed down. And, and then suddenly being a Christian was changed not by orthopraxy, in other words, how you lived your life, but it was defined by what did you believe? Did you have the right information about who God is? And if you had the right information about who God was, therefore you were a Christian, uh, according now to this new model, uh, and then you could behave any way you want. You could take up a sword and start killing people and join the military, and no problem with that. Oh, you want to be a part of the government? Sure, go ahead. Because the way you lived your life no longer defined you as a Christian or not. And that's a pretty radical shift. Uh, and that has continued, that has maintained for a long time. Now, the Anabaptists... Um, you know, they they most famously kind of rediscovered the two kingdoms theory, uh, again, by reading the scriptures for themselves and saying in the New Testament, wow, look how radically different uh, people lived. And and they began to do the same thing, and they were persecuted for it, as the early church was persecuted for it as well, and many of them were put to death. Um, and so my whole argument is, uh, as I write about in the book, Jesus Untangled, and what I'm saying here uh, on, in this debate, 
uh, is that I do believe that as followers of Jesus, Jesus calls us to follow him and to walk in a different way. We're, we're encouraged by Paul and others in the New Testament not to become entangled with the affairs of this world. And I, I submit that politics is certainly an affair of this world. It's the way, it is the method that the way, of the way the world works uh, is, is politics. Um, and, you know, uh, here's what I do want to make sure that I, that I clarify in this debate. When I say that I believe that, that followers of Jesus should not be entangled with the world and should not be uh, involved with politics— what, please don't hear me saying that what I mean is that Christians should not care about what happens to non-Christians. What, that, don't hear me saying that Christians should not engage with the culture. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. Um, in fact, I, I would argue the opposite. I would argue, like those uh, early Christians in the, in the first, second, and third centuries, I would argue that they had an incredible impact on the culture. In fact, they had an impact on the culture because they were practicing a two kingdoms doctrine, because they were living such a radically different life from the, the, the way people around them lived. They had a transformational impact on the culture. And I would actually like to read something that I actually just ran across today. Uh, and it's an excerpt from uh, a, the letter from a Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King. And Martin Luther King, in this letter, uh, here's what he says. He says, there was a time when the church was very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Christians believed that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than man. By their effort, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. And that is the kind of two kingdoms um, practice that I am talking about. I do understand that some people, uh, when they talk about two kingdoms, they do mean that we should become like the Amish, we sh or we should just you know, go off and uh, build some kind of commune somewhere and cut ourselves off completely and not use telephones and computers and the internet and blah, 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 and whatever. Uh, and that, it don't, that is not what I'm saying. I'm saying we are called to be um, in the world, but not of the world. And to make a difference uh, by following Jesus, by our orthopraxy, by the way we follow Christ. And that should and it must have an impact on the culture around us. That's what Jesus intends. Uh, I, I, what I try to remind people is that as followers of Christ in the kingdom of God, we have a king. We have a ruler. He is a ruler. He has a platform. He has a kingdom. And and we are his ambassadors. Uh, we are ambassadors of that kingdom. Uh, and so he has a plan, by the way, to transform the world, to make the world a better place. I, I agree. I understand. I, I get it. Uh, as someone who myself was once entangled very much in, with politics in my in my former life, Um uh, I think it comes from a good place. It comes from a place of saying, I want to make the world a better place. I see problems in the world. I see evils in the world, and I want to fix this. I want to make it better. But I want to submit to you that politics is not the best way to, to solve the evils in the world or to make the world a better place. I submit that Jesus has the best possible way to change the world from the inside out by transforming first us into people who look and act like Jesus, who love and forgive and serve like Jesus, who have an impact on the culture that way. Um, and, and that's what we're called to do. That's who we're called to be. Uh, that's his plan to change the world, to transform us from the inside out and then to transform everyone around us also, one person at a time from the inside out. And that is how the kingdom of God advances. That's how the kingdom of God will eventually, as it says in Revelation, the kingdom of our God has, uh, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God. That is our king's plan to change the world. Uh, and that's what I'm calling Christians to do. All right, so that wraps up Keith's opening argument. Now we are on to Mark's opening argument. Mark, you have 12 minutes. You may begin. Uh, thanks for having me on, and thanks, Keith, for uh, – that was an excellent overview of the Two Kingdoms view. And uh, Keith and I talked a little bit uh, the other day, and we realized that we have, we have lots of overlap. I, I tend to agree uh, philosophically a lot of the time, and most of my disagreements – are seemingly subtle, but I think as we enact uh, our faith in the world, some of these subtle things uh, take on a lot more meaning. So um, it's going to challenge uh, some of these, some of what you said, and present an alternative 
um, that is largely subtly different. And hopefully as we continue, we'll get into how significant those subtle differences are. I, one of my biggest problems uh, with the Two Kingdoms view is the way it was developed was in a time among the Radical Reformation uh, where folks were were peasants or they were part of a press group. And uh, Menno Simons and some of the other Anabaptists had a posture of disengagement. Um, and I think that was a good tactic at the time um, because it was a way to remove themselves uh, particularly because the alternative, the other groups that were more engaged with the system as it was, primarily through warfare, they got they got murdered. Um, so pragmatically, pacifism was not only a theological conviction; it also made some practical sense. That's why the Mennonites are one of the only groups from that year uh, from the Radical Reformation uh, that survived. Uh, but as you look in the context today, with most Mennonites and people that are kind of the carriers of the two kingdoms view today, we're in a position of power and privilege. And the downside with the two kingdoms view, it doesn't have to always be a downside, but one of the biggest downsides is if you leave the kingdom of the world to its own devices and you're off over here, uh, that plays into uh, the easy kind of middle class, affluent, white privilege kind of way of living. Because uh, we don't have to be involved in politics to reap the benefits of the good life that um, to, to reap the fruit that was sown through colonialism uh, so that's that's my first point. Uh, secondly, I think philosophically there's a problem with thinking of two kingdoms the way it's traditionally been understood as two spheres. Uh, this buys into a sort of dualism that we actually don't experience. Uh, the, the Anabaptists, or they, the Amish, have to try really hard to be able to experience the two kingdoms kind of view fully, uh, uh, fully, uh, fully flushed out because and by re totally removing themselves almost geographically from everyone else. But the rest of us, we, we intermingle. I mean, this, this is why the other two kingdoms view that was popularized by Luther kind of makes some sense for folks. It's We're in both of these kingdoms, whether we'd like it or not, and so there's two different sets of ground rules. Uh, the Lutheran view is problematic because we're not two individuals, we're one person, and we can only give our allegiance to one. Uh, the Anabaptist thing makes sense if we could actually remove ourselves, but we really can't. And so that leaves us with a problem. Uh, how do we understand these two different competing ways of engaging things, the way of Jesus and the way I like to frame it, the way of empire. I think instead of thinking about two kingdoms or two spheres, um, I look at them as two competing narratives about how the world actually functions. And to me, the question is how we live out that narrative. And then how does that narrative cause us to engage the competing narrative? Uh, also, another thing that I think is important, uh, the kind of the view I have, I'm a Christian anarchist, which a lot of people that are two kingdoms think of themselves as Christian anarchists. They want to subvert uh, or at least uh, distance themselves from empire. Uh, one of the people I know that sometimes considers himself uh, a Christian anarchist who also thinks of himself uh, as someone who uh, buys into the two kingdoms view is Greg Boyd. And part of the way that that looks uh, is largely he and I will agree in sentiment and things, but for example, whereas I'd be comfortable getting arrested at a Black Lives Rally interstate shutdown and from the pulpit uh, talking about how we should support Black Lives Matter and endorse it and maybe even endorse the movement for Black Lives Platform, uh, Greg wouldn't be comfortable doing that because that crosses the line into politics. Um, part of my motivation in this is to, I recognize that the center for discernment and from a liberationist perspective isn't just the faithful community gathering in the Bible, but the faithful community gathering in the Bible, but in engagement with the poor and oppressed. So that uh, the preferential option for the poor in a liberationist perspective is this idea that we can't even really know the truth or experience the spirit um, uh, apart uh, from some sort of solidarity with the oppressed. And part of that, as I've embraced that more and more, has shifted my thinking of how do I engage kind of the, the kingdoms of the world uh, in more of a proactive way of trying to alleviate some of the suffering and also in a revolutionary way, trying to actually subvert, um, undermine and push back against the kingdom of the world. Um, so I don't see Jesus's way as just a mere alternative, uh, but Jesus's way as actively engaging the system in a way to subvert it. Um, and practically speaking, I think I, we have to be willing to get our hands dirty in order to gauge the system in a way that helps restrain oppression. Uh, now, there's a downside to this, obviously. I, I've been in a lot of radical-leaning or progressive sorts of communities that their sense of integrity as embodying the kingdom of God gets lost when they just focus on being kind of like Marxist about stuff. 
Uh, so I'm going to recognize there's a problem of like removing some sort of two kingdoms framework. Uh, and even if you just switch that with a two narrative sort of framework, it's still going to cause you to want to collapse things. And maybe you'll just think of spirituality as a, or the way of Jesus as utilitarian as a way to just undo oppression. And I think that's a real problem. Uh, so to me, it's really not an either or, it's a both and. Um, uh, within activist kind of circles, we often talk about uh, prefigurative politics. That's where you embody the sort of thing you want the society to be like. I think that's essentially kind of the heart, the best part of the Two Kingdoms view is that we have to embody Jesus's vision for the world. And then from that place, we have to engage the world in such a way that we challenge the powers, create uh, more freedom and liberation for people who are suffering, and not buy into this sort of thinking that somehow we think that that's an entirely different realm. Uh, just to touch back on one of the things you said, and I think it's important, is we often create this almost utopian view of the church before Constantine, as though uh, Constantine co-opted the church politically, and before then we were okay. But the story, leading from around uh, 250 AD to 300 AD, which is one generation, the Christian population in Rome jumped from 1% to 10%. And during that time, you had a growth in the, the class of bishops who became increasingly wealthy, and the whole reason why it was tempting for Constantine to co-opt Christianity was because the church was becoming wealthy. Uh, and this is important because one of the big downsides with Two Kingdoms view, especially it's been lived out within Anabaptist groups, is we tend to have this category of politics that uh, is this moving target. What is politics? Where do you draw the line? And oftentimes, Anabaptists don't draw the line around anything to do with economics including the Amish. I mean, the Amish recently, like when Bernie Madoff ran off with a bunch of money, uh, there was a, <laughs> there were these hucksters going around these uh, Amish colonies getting people to invest millions of dollars. Uh, so even the Amish, if we think of them as two kingdoms, they're not two kingdoms when it comes to economic realities. Uh, and it's impossible for us, unless we completely opt out of the market economy entirely, to be opted out of economics. So whether we like it or not, we're totally and completely tied into the economic and political realities. And it feels naive for us to try to create some sort of we're in this other kingdom uh, and then somehow draw the line at whatever we feel like is politics uh, without some sort of real clear way of understanding how everything else we don't include in that is not politics. Um, so what is the line between culture and politics? In our society, I've struggled to find where it is. Um, I think everything we do is politics. And so it's a question of how we do politics. How do we relate to the world? And what are the ethical frameworks and practices we use to shape ourselves in the way of Jesus? Uh, is a much more practical, helpful, and I think faithful way to frame it rather than uh, is this part of the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of God? Uh, you quoted MLK, and I think MLK is, like obviously, he's very quotable and, and uh, an important prophetic and saintly figure uh, for those of us who want to engage in political stuff, especially in these dark times. Uh, and MLK, he may have talked well about how the, this idyllic time in the past, but the way he lived with the current realities was to engage politics. He talked about the beloved community, and it's very, uh, it's really almost fits into that two kingdoms view that there's this way of living that's the beloved community that fits this dream that he had. And he tried to embody it and try to be a part of communities that embodied it. But at the same time, he would meet with LBJ. Uh, he would engage in voter turnouts, uh, boycotts, uh, uh, street shutdowns, uh, all these sorts of things that were various ways of engaging political stuff without even really saying, hey, the empire, the way it has its authority is legitimate. It wasn't that wasn't his motivation at all, but to create a space for more beloved community. And I think that's the way we have to engage in our society today. All right, so that concludes the opening argument portion of the debate. We will now move into a period of approximately uh, 16 minutes where Keith and Mark will be directly dialoguing and addressing one another's points. So gentlemen, take it away. Mark, thank you. Um, I, I wanted to just call out a couple of things that you mentioned in uh, in your statements and uh, ask you to elaborate on it a little bit, and then maybe we can just talk about it a little bit. Um, one of the things that you said, and this is honestly something I've been thinking about ever since 
the idea of this debate even came up. Um, something that you were saying, and it was kind of along the lines of liberation theology, which I'm familiar with as well, and, and I'm sympathetic to in many ways as well, um, the preferential option for the poor and recognizing that the gospel was good news to the poor, uh, and that if it's not good news to the poor, it probably isn't good news. Um, but but here's what I want you to tell me what you think or how would you respond to this? What, what would you say about someone who someone asks you this question? So is the gospel only for the poor and is it not for the rich or for the rest of us? And what I mean is, is that uh, in, in the context of this two, two kingdoms rule, because what you're saying, you made the statement that, um, you know, that one of the downsides of the two kingdoms rule is that uh, for us, people like you and me, who are white middle class, uh, you know, evangelical Christians or, or whatever we, white, white middle class Christians, that we don't have to be involved uh, to reap the benefits of a society that's already leaning towards favoring us. And so then my question is, well, then, is, the, is there a gospel for people like us? Is there a different gospel for us than there is for people who are living in poverty? And how, what are, is there a difference in your mind? And if so, what is it? Great question. That is a great question. And it's a heavy, it's a heavy thing. I mean, if you look at uh, the gospel of Luke, um, and the themes continue in uh, Luke part two, the, <laughs> the book of Acts, uh, you really get the sense that the gospel comes to the poor and the wealthy are included only in so much as they give up uh, their wealth. I mean, you have this theme, Jesus says this to the, to the, you know, who, the person we call the rich young ruler. He says this to his disciples. Uh, it's implicit or explicit in different other parts, like uh, the Magnificat, the, the Song of Mary, uh, uh, the blessings and the woes from the Sermon on the Plain, that if those of us who are powerful, that are rich, I mean, however we figure that out is a big question in itself, I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. We have to be part of this reversal. Um, we can't just maintain our current status the way it is and think that we can receive the gospel because the gospel comes first to the poor and then to us. Um, it's kind of similar to the idea of Paul talks about uh, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So it's it's not that we're omitted from the gospel. It's just uh, there's kind of an, an order of, uh, I don't even want to say priority, but it's a sequentially, uh, it's not a flat gospel. It starts in the margins and comes to the center and we have a choice to make. And the gospel isn't just this, you know, as we've, we've seen this in the West for hundreds and now even maybe thousands of years, I guess, uh, this dualistic way of understanding the gospel as some sort of interior spiritual thing. Uh, and so it's, it's impossible if we believe in a fully holistic gospel for it not to be something that challenges our politics and our economics. And I don't think it makes any sense for us to say we've received the gospel if we're staying pretty much in the same economic and political location, uh, we have to give it up. We have to repent and embrace the kingdom of God. Wow. And so, um, and, and I, I kind of expected that. And so, and I agree, and I agree with you. And in fact, I think that I, I would even go in some ways farther because I, I know there's a, there's a passage in Luke where, because uh, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, when Jesus responded to the rich young ruler, that was just to him because that was his particular hang-up. He didn't say that to every disciple, but actually uh, later in the, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus does say uh, that you cannot be my disciple unless you give up everything. Uh, not, not to say even that you're willing to if it comes up. He actually does flat out say you can't be my disciple if you don't give up everything. And so there is that statement, and that I agree with you, that is in the Gospel. Um, but I, th I also think that what we do see that is, whereas that is a very strong um, thread and stream throughout the, the the gospel message, especially in the early church, um, it was never a mandate. In other words, like we see with Ananias and Sapphira, and you know, people were selling the property and laying it at the apostles' feet for for sharing with the poor among them, and and in one case, someone sold the land and gave all the money. And in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they they gave some of it, held it back, uh, but like they lied about it. And when Peter responds to them, he says, "You could have kept all the money, or you could have kept some of it for yourself." In other words, it, the the implication was that it, you're still free. In other words, there was no mandate that in the Church of Jesus you had to do that. Uh, they did not. It wasn't like the Essenes or something where they they demanded a vow of poverty. 
but at the same time, it was a very strong ethic, right? Um, and so I, I think there is still, even in what we're talking about, even in the early church, there is still that possibility of someone not completely divesting themselves financially and, and becoming, you know, embracing complete poverty, but um, but being careful to make sure that they are, have an open hand, they are sharing, uh, that sharing is the value, I think, uh, with everyone who has need and not being tight-fisted. Um, and so I, I, I still think that, I, whereas I agree with you, I think that there's still room for someone to, that it's not a mandate, it's not across the board. Uh, and do you agree with that, or do you think that, that it, that's uh, hedging the bet? I mean, I sure hope you're right, because I certainly haven't divested of everything. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, I mean, I recognize that. And I think this is the challenge. Um, I don't think Christianity is built on the idea of mandates. Uh, you know, to me, and this is where I really lean towards the Quakers. Uh, and it's also really strong in Jesus's teachings, particularly in John, that it's the spirit that will guide us in the truth. And that there's really this need for discernment. Um, and this is, I mean, it's really messy. Uh, if you start thinking, well, our politics should be one of discernment, our economics should be one of discernment, uh, because we tend to think that'll get us more off the hook. Uh, but in my experience, you know, the church has just sucked at how to do politics well and is, and how to do economics well, even with some of the best laid out mandates. Um, and rarely does the church ever engage in discernment. And the best examples of churches that are almost purely based on discernment, the Quakers, have had some of the strongest stances around justice issues. Um, and so to me, this ties back into the politics thing is because, you know, one of the challenges I laid out, and I want to hear you say a little bit more, uh, I don't really practically know how we really slice the difference between politics and not politics, mm -hmm. um, or our commitment to Jesus, or whether or not something is moving away from our commitment to Jesus. Uh, yeah. That, that's a discerning thing. So I'm, I'm wondering how, if you could say a little bit more about how, where do we draw the line and how do we figure out where we draw the line? Yeah. And this is, this is, a, I think, really a great, uh, a great point, man. And then you and I touched on this a little bit the other day when we first spoke that, uh, and I'm just going to confess, this is a struggle. I think having the conversation, even with myself, about where that line is, is an ongoing conversation. Um, uh, and just again, as I said, you know, politics to me is not the same as justice. Uh, I I am someone who has spent the last, oh gosh, I don't know, 10, 15 years or so, um, working with my, my wife and I and our family and our church family, engaging with the poor here in Orange County, California, um, and, and predominantly working with um, people living in poverty, living in motels, um, and then just most recently, there's like a tent city of about three or 400 uh, homeless people living in tents right outside Angel Stadium, um, which is only a few blocks from my house. And, and so I, I feel personally a very strong call that, that those are my poor, that I am called to love them and serve them and engage with them to, to share in their sufferings, uh, and to, um, to love them. I mean, and so I, I, that to me is justice, and that's something that I feel very strongly about. That that every Christian is called to do. That the way I love the poor says something about the way that I love Jesus, and that's Matthew twenty-five. And um, but at the same time, uh, at least in my practice to this point, I have done everything I can do, right up until the line of engaging politically. So I have I have stopped short of going to city hall and you know, speaking to the city council about the issue. Uh, I've stopped short of, you know, whatever, doing things that would politically um, move in that direction. And again, because of my convictions, I feel like my calling as a follower of Jesus is simply to be, uh, and I don't want to say this also, by the way, too, in the other direction, I, I think entanglement, like my book talks a lot about entanglement from the, um, you know the the Republican conservative side of things, but but I think I, I see entanglement as well on the on the left as well with Christians uh, who feel that well I voted a certain way or I, I gave some money I donated some money over here or there uh, and then they feel like well oh there you go I've I've satisfied um, you know what Jesus has called me to do to 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 care for the poor I, I think that 
you you use the phrase getting our hands dirty, Mark, and, and I think that's exactly like I, I think really what Jesus is calling us to do is I need to go meet someone who's poor. I need to go spend time with someone who's homeless. I need to know his name. I need to know what color his eyes are. I need to know something about him. I need to be involved in his struggle and in his life. I need to know why he's there and what keeps him there and and what I can do to help him get out of it. And and I, you know what I'm saying? So I think we're called to relationship with people who are suffering. Um, and again, to me, none of that is politics. But, but, but I have... Uh, as an example, like right now in Orange County, it's not yet illegal for me to feed people. But the day may come, and there's been talk about that even in certain cities here in Orange County that you know they, they've been threatening to pass laws that it would make it illegal to feed people who are homeless. And and so then that would kind of force my hand. Well, then you know what? I'm just going to feed them anyway, and then if I get arrested, I get arrested. Um, but even then, to me, that's still justice. I've not I've not engaged. A political system to solve a, a problem, and for me, that's just been something that I've I've not felt that that was my calling. And I don't know how you feel about that, but that that's that for me is where I've drawn the line is to stop short of directly engaging something political. Uh, that's helpful, and I I mean I resonate a lot with what you said and the spirit of it. Um, I mean, it sounds a lot like I'm a big fan of Dorothy Day and the Catholic Worker yes. Movement. Yes. And uh, I'm assuming you are too. You, yeah. You sound a lot like it. <laughs> yeah. And they, and they, uh, one of the things that really influenced them was the European uh, tradition of personalism. Basically, the philosophy that human beings are real, but our structures, uh, like, aren't real. Like, so this land underneath my feet uh, is real, uh, but there's no such thing called the United States of America that's a real thing. It's a collective myth. Uh, that we agree to tell each other. And um, through that collective myth, there's a group of people that have the power of violence to use against us if we do something that doesn't benefit that imaginary thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so to me, the issue, the way I approach it, like, so uh, when people were losing their homes after the bubble burst, right? Or, be, you know, uh, there's foreclosures happening and we were doing uh, house occupations, um, basically making the sheriff drag us away um, if if someone's going to be forcibly evicted from their home. Uh, but because of that, I also went um, and sat, I put on a suit, <laughs> which uh, was hard for me to do, and went to the mayor's office and had some, a couple meetings. Um, to me, I felt like I was able to do that because I didn't really think that was actually lending leg uh, legitimacy to the office of mayor. Uh, I felt like I recognized that they have this power over people that's been given to them, and I want to challenge that power and try to push and restrain them uh, whatever way I can so that they would uh, somehow lean on the the county system to not enforce uh, enforce their laws. Uh, so to me, it's a question of I, – I honestly, since I'm an anarchist, I don't think any governmental authority is legitimate. Um, um, but even within that, I feel like anything that I can do within that system that doesn't have to lend credence to its legitimacy, um, I'm going to do that. Um, and even beyond that, sometimes I'm willing to make some compromises if the suffering is going to be great, because I feel like I have to spend in some ways my uh, – I have to be willing to get dirty a little bit if the people that are primarily being influenced ask me to. I feel like there's a little bit of that, and that's part of the discernment process. I don't think it's clean. I'm not sure if I'm right, but I feel like that's part of the process of figuring out how – discerning how to land. Um, and my fear with um, – I know you do good work, and you're putting uh, your, it into practice, but a lot of people who embrace a two-kingdom sort of view use it as a way of justifying inaction in the face of oppression. Yeah, I, and I would agree with you on that, and I would say those people are wrong. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I desperately, I would agree with you that that, that, isn't, uh, that isn't something that a follower of Jesus uh, can do. I mean, for, as I said earlier, like to me, if you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to live out the gospel uh, and you're going to make a difference in the world around you, you, you know, being salt and light entails being engaged. If you're not engaged in the culture, if you're not engaged uh, in those ways, then then you're not being salt and light, and then you're not you're you're not doing what you're called to do. 
Okay, so that was fantastic, guys. And now we're going to move into me asking you some questions. So we've set aside approximately 14 minutes here for me to ask you some some critical questions about uh, your your various arguments. And we'll try to keep this balanced sort of between the two of you and, and alternate um, between Keith and Mark. So here we go. So, Keith, a, a big part of your argument had to do with the early church. And the I, I guess my, my question would be, you know, we read the New Testament and we see the the apostles correcting the early Christians in in, in, a, in a lot of ways. And really, we didn't have what we now define as orthodoxy or the the apostolic creeds, the early creed, the Nicene creed, the apostles creed, uh, the Chalcedonian creed, what have you, all, all these creeds that kind of now constitute orthodoxy. We didn't have those for several centuries. So my question is, is, is the early church right on everything? I mean, because even in, in some ways, they would still disagree with each other. And I mean, and that's why we sort of had these creeds develop. So, I mean, how can we just default to trusting that the early church definitely had it right uh, on, on this issue? Well, that's a good question. I think, um, I, again, I want to draw a distinction, though, because even in the way you asked the question, you, you, what you pointed out were different things, different points that they disagreed on. So, you, you know, like they disagreed on this scripture means this or this doctrine or that one. And we do know that the early church, um, you know, they disagreed almost from the beginning about the afterlife. And some believed, uh, I think there were three separate camps. Some, some believed uh, eternal suffering. Some believed um, in universal recon- recon- reconciliation eventually. Uh, and some believed in annihilationism. And so, yeah, they disagreed on lots of things. Uh, we know from, as you said, in the, some of the epistles of Paul, which, by the way, if the early church didn't disagree on certain things, we wouldn't have most of the New Testament. So I guess we should be grateful for that. Uh, but I would draw a distinction between them disagreeing on certain points with my point, which is orthopraxy, because, it, because those disagreements still deal with orthodoxy. Those disagreements still deal with doctrines and the meaning of this or the meaning of that or belief about this or that. Uh, kind of thing. And for me, um, whereas those things, you know, depending on what it is, ha- have some level or measure of importance, yes, you know, we could be wrong or could be right about this or that. Um, on the issue of orthopraxy, on this issue of the the two kingdoms, what I'm talking about, uh, the idea that, no, Jesus said this, Jesus himself uh, resisted the temptation of Satan to pick up this, you know, the, the power of, of government. Uh, Jesus refused. You know, when, they, when the people tried to make him king, right, he, by force, he slipped away. Uh, so he is a king, but he's not a king uh, of the, one of the kingdoms of this world. And, and so the early Christians, I believe, by the way they behaved, uh, demonstrated that they, this is what they understood. And um, whereas, yes, they may have disagreed on other things. And yes, some things we would even look at and say that was kind of screwy. <laughs> some of the things that they did, some of these guys believed. Uh, but in the orthopraxy, in the way they follow Jesus and the way they understood, this is what it means to be a Christian. Uh, that one of those things was that we are not going to be part of the world and the kingdom of the world. We're not going to be involved uh, in government. We're not going to be involved in the violence of the world. Um, we're going to live and behave a different way. But that, in fact, that Jesus came to show us a different way. Uh, and I, I would say for them to have gone, to, 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 to have done otherwise would have been denying what the way that Jesus showed them and, and modeled and, and demonstrated. Okay, fair enough. Uh, now, Mark, a, a big component of it seems where you're coming from, and I mean, cor- correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe you you said this near the beginning, is that... Um, as as kind of middle class uh, contemporary white guys, we we sort of have a lot of benefits that came down from from colonialism. Now, so my question is, uh, what about what about innovation? I mean, just consider the fact that right now uh, th- th- there's three of us here talking. Me as the moderator, you two as debaters, and uh, we have Doug recording, and we're all four in different states, and we're using very advanced technology that. The the richest people in the world, like John D. Rockefeller, a hundred years ago, could never have dreamed of having this kind of access. And now it's just common. Even people who are are considered quote unquote uh, poor 
Americans or, or below the poverty line are walking around with smartphones that connect them globally to anyone else on Earth. Doesn't innovation play a role in that? I mean, how can you, how can you just pin that on colonialism? Um, that's a great question. Uh, I don't pin it all on colonialism, <laughs> but it's definitely a part of it. Uh, we have all these systems of colonialism, capitalism, history, and uh, it's really hard to figure out how to slice and dice uh, where all the, the affluence came from. And we also have to make do with what we have now. Uh, but it's a reality, like, especially like, you know, especially when we're thinking about the, the Christian perspective. Uh, when we're talking about the early church or the New Testament or even the Anabaptists, uh, they weren't, their relationship with Christendom was slightly different than our relationship. We're more towards the center. Um, and whether, even if you think that a lot of the things we have, you, you think of them as blessings rather than ill-gotten gains, it still raises a question of how you relate with all this stuff. Um, because to me, that innovation is still also political. Uh, those things didn't didn't just come from people with purely just hard work uh, and know-how. Um, there's a complex system of who had access to the the learning in order to create different innovations, where their money came from, who their investors were, uh, the relationship uh, between uh, corporations and the government is murky and problematic in our society. And so all that comes into play. And so at the very least, we have to engage in some sort of discernment. Uh, I agree with, to me, part of what I'm hearing in your sentiment is, hey, it's not, you can't just throw it all away as bad. And I don't think we really can. That's, to me, is intellectually dishonest. But at the same time, we have to recognize that a lot of it in our society is tied into these stories that bring us a certain amount of shame. And how we engage that, uh, I think it's a little bit naive to somehow disengage and think that's just the kingdom of the world. We have to discern and create communities that are good and better at discerning to figure out what we do with these things and what obligation that puts up on us in our allegiance to Christ. Now, Keith, to kind of go back to that early church sort of subject, but but fast forwarding a few centuries, you, you talk about Constantine and also in, in your, your book, you, you talk about Constantine a lot as well. But isn't there also, I mean, if you kind of put yourself in the shoes of the people who were there at that time, like, I mean, one of our best sources, uh, it's a very tainted source in, in many respects, very biased source, but it's still one of the best sources are, are the writings of Eusebius. And he was actually mm -hmm. very, uh, very in favor of Constantine, but that was probably in the context of the fact that he'd seen how, how many Christians had been persecuted and slaughtered and by the empire for so long. I mean, couldn't you see it as a a blessing in some sense for the Christians at that time uh, to say, hey, here's somebody who at, at least professes to be a Christian and is going to stop murdering us. I mean, can't we can't we be thankful for the sovereignty of God for that? I mean, is, is it is is it erroneous to just think Constantine was all bad? Well, um, I. I could speak too long about whether Constantine was all good or all bad or saved or not, and but I think that's irrelevant. I think the deeper nugget of your question that's that I want to respond to is the perspective of the those people on the ground at the time. Like if you and I had lived during that time, if we had gone through and knew people who had been, um, you know, tortured, skinned alive, burned alive, beheaded, crucified. Uh, you know, those kind of things thrown to the lions, those kind of things. If, if we, we were Christians who had lived under that kind of oppression and those, those periods of persecution, uh, yes, I can understand where it would be. It would certainly at first at least seem like really great news that the, the, the emperor is now on our team. Uh, he's going to favor us now. Uh, whew, okay, good. The sword is going to, uh, the sword of the empire is going to come off of our necks. And isn't that a wonderful thing? And I think that was the reaction for for many Christians in the in, at that time. But the irony is this: that within a generation, the sword was still back on the throat of the church. The sad thing was the the people holding the sword were other Christians, and now what they were doing was um, helping to kill other brothers and sisters in Christ who disagreed with them on doctrines that Constantine had helped them decide were either true or false. And so uh, we just the sword never left. It just changed hands. And, this, and the, the worst thing is that the, the, the people holding the sword were other Christians. 
And so in the end, I think that was not a fair exchange. And I think even then, many Christians would have said, yikes, let's go back. Uh, maybe feeling some regret about, um, you know, what had happened. And, and we do know, we do know historically that uh, many of the, of the Christians at that time uh, opted out. They said, you know what? Nope, not going to play this game. Nope, this is where the church is going. I'm not going to be a part of it. And they went off to the desert. Uh, and, you know, that's where we have the Desert Fathers. And they just said, no, nope, I'm not going to be a part of this at all. If this is where things are going. Now, Mark, one of the things you had had brought up in your statements there is uh, re- regarding ho- home foreclosures and, and doing some sit-ins to prevent people from from getting evicted. So when we're thinking about uh, re- resistance to uh, oppressive power structures, I mean, if you're talking about the state, I, I, I can certainly see that. I mean, I, I think that uh, pretty much everyone here um, – from all sides of of this debate perspective, would would agree that the state is is an oppressive power structure. But if we're thinking about something like a mortgage, right, where the, these people, um, for whatever reason, contracted and and made a voluntary commitment that they're going to to pay this mortgage, and they borrowed the money, they chose to take on that debt, and then they defaulted. Uh, I, I I mean, isn't that interfering with uh, the the right of the bank that they contracted with. I mean, how is that not helping them to, in effect, steal from from the bank? I mean, can can we just say all, all banks are bad and therefore it's okay to do that, or is there an element of kind of that enabling people to 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 make irresponsible decisions with their money? Well, that's a good question. I I, I feel like uh, the state isn't the only corrupt bad system that oppresses, and I think banks are right up there towards the top of that list. Um, for most of church history, we've saw, seen usury as an intrinsically just is a social evil. Uh, the way in which banks have engaged in deceptive or predatory lending, the fact that if you buy a home, you have to pay for it multiple, many times over. Um, and if you only pay, it, uh, pay for your house twice, you can still have it taken from you. Uh, the way in which the government then enforces the foreclosure on the bank. Uh, uh, through the force of arms, the way that banks don't allow you to renegotiate because they can then go to someone else and make a profit somewhere else. The fact that they can insure their mortgage. So even if they take your, you pay your house twice over um, <laughs> and then they take it from you, they can not only make that money, but then they can sell it and plus they can get insurance off of it. So it's just all a stinky mess. And so just to kind of reduce it down to a contract or some sort of oath or promise, uh, I think kind of simplifies the complexity of it and also doesn't recognize the way in which people often are are squeezed. Uh, you know, if you're in living in a high rent situation, you, you basically have no choice for housing. And sometimes if you can buy housing with somebody else, uh, it's just in an unjust system, people have to make the choices that are going to be best for them. And then the system, if the system abandons them and then the house can be taken from them because of a choice that was made perhaps even under a type of duress, uh, it's it's really problematic. So that's just the beginning of the complexity of it. Okay, we've got just about a minute left here in this part of the, the segment, so I'm going to ask you both one more question and just try to give me a quick answer. Uh, <laughs> so, um, Keith, you know, if, if all the world is coming under the reign of God, how do you exclude political things, the things of the city, which is the original meaning of politics. How can you, how can you exclude that if everything is under the reign of God? Well, because I think I, again, the two kingdoms approach takes this view of Romans 12 uh, is telling us what the church should do. And Romans 13 is telling us what the state is all about. And and there's a separation of those two things. And so we let the state be the state and we we deal with being the body of Christ and the things that are, that fall under that umbrella. Okay. And Mark, what do you propose as like specific forms of political engagement, and and how do you how do you influence the state um, without sort of violating your your anarchist principles? Uh, there are a lot of principles, but I think at the baseline we have to the practice is to go into solidarity with people experiencing oppression and do discernment and follow discernment where it goes. I don't like being too prescriptive, but at the very least, as long as we engage the system without recognizing its ultimate legitimacy, uh, I think you're pretty safe <laughs> in terms of not giving it too much power. 
so that's generally how I approach things and allow there to be nuance in the case of discernment with the community. All right. So that closes out this section of the debate. And we are now going to uh, have both the debaters each make a three-minute closing argument, a final appeal for why you should throw your hat in in their camp, if I can <laughs> say it that way. So, uh, Keith, you have three minutes to make your closing statement. You may begin. Thank you. Uh, well, again, I would go back uh, to the early Christians, and, and what we see is when we look at the, the Christians in the early first, second, third centuries, and when they made these statements about the reasons why they did not uh, involve themselves in politics, it was never on the basis that it was because Rome was just so bad, as if, well, if Rome had just been a little better, or quote-unquote a Christian nation, uh, that then they would have been interested in, in doing that. In every case, what they they make the, the statement that they are part of a different kingdom. In other words, their conviction was that they were in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of Christ. And, and many of these Christians, keep in mind, went to their deaths because they refused to say that that Caesar was king, uh, Caesar was Lord. They they said Jesus was Lord. They said we have no king but Jesus, and that was true until the time of Constantine. And at that point, um, the church and the state became entangled. I th I think also I when I wrote my book again I'm coming from a place of wanting to speak to um, these you know, the evangelical Christians who are who are mainly entangled with their politics uh, to the point where they're more American than Christians and and what I want them to see the the reason I'm calling them out of that into something more like a two kingdoms approach uh, is is because well several reasons one it's creating division and if you go to facebook you'll you will experience it right uh, people are not only unfriending one another they are they are literally unfriending each other in real life uh, over disagreements um on politics and again Paul, the apostle in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, doesn't allow Christians to divide over which apostle is their favorite. So I, there's no possible reason to justify Christians dividing over something um, not even to deal with the church, but to, with the world, uh, with politics. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why I think we need to separate ourselves from politics. The other thing is that um, we have a whole generation of people that we're losing that are called the Duns uh, who are checking out of church because it's so political. Uh, they just want Jesus, and we're giving them this political message uh, and I think that's one of the important reasons why. And the other reason is uh, people say, you know, why can't we do both, Keith? Why can't we be good Americans, uh, be involved in politics, and follow Jesus? And I would say because Jesus is not going the same direction. If Jesus and 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 America, if Jesus and our country, our nation, are walking the same direction, then of course we can follow both because they're both headed in the same direction. But I believe that all the kingdoms of this world, including America, are headed south, and Jesus is headed north. And he calls us to, he says, follow me. He's going a different way, a different direction. He calls us to follow him in a different way, in a different direction. And he does have a plan to change the world. Um, and it is the only one that's going to work. Uh, I would also remind Christians that most of your brothers and sisters on this planet are not Americans. Most of the Christians, are, uh, that means they're not Republicans or Democrats or capitalists or what have you. And so not only is it possible to follow Jesus apart from our nationalism or our politics, it's essential. Uh, it's being done around the world today, and I think it's something that we need to embrace and get back to being the people who are following Christ, first and foremost, who are living out the ethics of Christ in his kingdom. Okay, Keith, you uh, you went about 15 seconds over there, so Mark, uh, I'll go ahead and give you an extra 15 seconds. You have three minutes, 15, to make your closing statement. Uh, just to sum up, I don't believe in two separate kingdoms with two separate spheres uh, and so I don't believe in uh, one sort of kingdom. It's an unkingdom. Uh, Jesus' authority is upside down. He doesn't have power over anyone. And any government, any system that tries to set up authority to oppress or dominate or rule over others is utterly illegitimate. Um, so I've become increasingly convinced that since only the unkingdom of God, which is uh, anarchic, is what God desires for the world, it's our duty as the church to subvert the government and to nonviolently revolt. Uh, rather than simply ignoring it, which often we tends to happen with the two kingdoms view, we must struggle against it proactively, actively, and creatively. We have to take it down brick by brick, but as with everything, we have to find a way to do that with love. Um, and we must seek to replace it by forming in the midst of the ruins of this world autonomous communities of deep mutuality and liberation, where we look at real problems with folks who suffer, discern responses prayerfully in fellowship with Jesus, and set a course.
Um, and I don't know if we won't know what that looks like until we start doing that work of discernment with people in specific places with specific problems. Uh, we must both create alternatives as well as resist the current systems of oppression. If you do the former without the latter, you end up with a disconnected enclave like the Amish. If you do the latter without the former, you end up making a lot of noise that never goes anywhere. Thank you. Well, that wraps it up for our first ever debate here on the Libertarian Christian Podcast. That was very enjoyable, guys. Thanks to Keith Giles and Mark Van Steenwick for joining us here today. If you'd like to reach out to us, you can email podcast at libertarianchristians.com. If you'd like to support LCI, you can also do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christians.